Hi, this is Millie Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. So it's Christmas time. Boy, the year goes fast. I feel like once we hit Labor Day, it's like the year is over. <laughs> and then we start again in January, and things maybe slow down just a little bit. But this is another year that has flown by. I hope that you are in the midst of a wonderful Christmas season for you and your loved ones. This week's topic is kind of focused on the living Christ, this, again, wonderful Latter-day revelation by living prophets that attest to the reality of Jesus Christ. I hope you've had a chance to read and discuss and ponder this wonderful document and what you know of Jesus Christ, what individually we each know and can testify of in terms of our having come to Christ and our personal journeys to come closer to him and to become more like him. Reading from that document... I want to read this beautiful description that Joseph Smith gives of the Savior Jesus Christ. His eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah, saying, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father." Such a powerful image that the prophet who saw Christ gives to us that we can imagine for a moment this magnificent being who is our Lord and Redeemer, the Savior of the world, our personal Savior, if we choose to receive him in our lives and follow his path, his covenant path. And then the prophets go on and later say this beautiful sentence, We solemnly testify that his life, meaning the life of Jesus Christ, which is central to all human history, neither began in Bethlehem nor concluded on Calvary. I think that's stunningly beautiful. It did not begin in Bethlehem, and it didn't end on Calvary. And now, there are a lot of beautiful churches in the world of many faiths, and I'm seen a lot of them, I'm sure not nearly as many as some of you perhaps, but as we've traveled through Latin America and Europe and other places, we often try to include visits to churches to see how people have chosen to build these beautiful edifices to to worship God, to honor God. At least I hope that that is always the intent. And You know, when you go to many churches that are not of our faith, you'd see the cross. And in a lot of Catholic cathedrals, you see crucifixes with Christ depicted on the cross on Calvary. And although I understand that that is a focus of of worship, we do need to not skip over Gethsemane and Calvary, where Christ paid this amazing price for us. Nevertheless, I am so grateful that we live in a church that does not land on the cross of Calvary, that while we need to ponder and understand what Christ did for us better and better as we go through life and we try to seek and deepen our understanding of this great gift, I am so grateful that we focus on the living Christ, not only that he died, but that he rose the third day, that he lives He loves us. He's a living Christ who loves us and will be in our life to the extent that we welcome him in. 
such a gift to all of us. I don't know. I, I get I get kind of overwhelmed by trying to talk about Jesus Christ on this podcast. I'll just be honest because it is. I feel like I'm this little ant, you know, trying to describe this this incredible deity who is so you know enormous in in who he is that I can just stand in awe. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful that as I have grown up and lived life, that I have increased my awe for Jesus Christ, that I do stand all amazed at who he is and what he has done for us and what he continues to offer day by day. Again, if we have the wits to receive it, if we have a a mind and a heart that that can be humble enough to let him in and let him guide us and to do things his way. So grateful to be a member of this church. So grateful to know about Jesus Christ. I continue to learn. I know I am still a student who is trying to understand this being of omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. There's a lot to understand. We've talked about that, how Joseph Smith said that we need to understand this God so that we can know how to worship him better and how to become like him. What a great task in our lives. And at Christmas time, we get to celebrate that in a special way. Now, I was talking to somebody the other day who said, you know, I don't like Christmas because it's not even the right date. And I thought, that's really sad because it doesn't matter to me. I know that he was born on April 6th, and I'm grateful for Latter-day Revelation that tells us that. It makes sense. God has orders to things, and there are patterns. So, you know, I like knowing that, of course. Nevertheless, I mean, if, if the world is willing to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ once a year at this time of year, hallelujah for it. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful to participate in that. Of course, our children were told and taught in the true birth of Christ, but that's that's okay to me if we celebrate at this time, and I hope that you are enjoying this time of year. So I, I want to focus on on one other idea about Jesus Christ, which comes out of 1 Nephi chapter 11, verse 16. Remember, this is the vision that Lehi had and told to his family. And then Nephi himself, this wonderful, obedient son, wants to understand more about this. He believes all the words of his father. It's not because he's doubting or challenging or questioning. He just wants to understand more and to be personally involved in this understanding. So he prays about it and is given this amazing vision. And he is taken to the top of a high mountain. And anyway, there's a place here in chapter 11, verse 16, where Nephi is asked this really poignant question. Knowest thou the condescension of God? I've pondered over that for years. It's just such a beautifully stated question with so much meaning to it. Now, we know what that means. That means somebody, you know, of high state or stature lowering themselves to a place of of less dignity, less, you know, stature or recognition or acknowledgement or praise. And this is exactly what Christ did. So, you know, just reviewing for a moment, and we could spend a long time on this, but let's just try to touch the highlights. This is Jehovah. Jesus Christ, this babe of Bethlehem, is the mighty Jehovah the creator of all things under the direction of our Heavenly Father. He's Alpha and Omega, the Lion of Judah. This is the deity who brought Israel out of the captivity of Egypt with a mighty arm. You know, he parted the Red Sea. He was their cloud by day, their pillar of fire by night. He provided manna in the wilderness for 40 years and didn't let their raiment become aged or worn out. 
This is the God who gave the victory to the shepherd boy David against the giant Goliath to save Israel from the Philistines. Just one of many times that this mighty Jehovah fought for Israel, if Israel was righteous enough to deserve it. He had the sun stand still for Joshua. Later, he moved the sun's shadow backward by 10 steps. I mean, how does this, how does this God work that can manipulate the laws of nature to his will, following the laws? He always is within the laws, but knows how to, to change them for the benefit of his people when needed. This is the God who sent fire to consume the sacrifice of Elijah that consumed not only the water that had been poured from 12 barrels of water onto the sacrifice, but also licking up the water, then consumed the stones with the fire of heaven. He lit the stones for the Jaredites to light their way to the new world. He taught Nephi how to build a ship. Nephi didn't know anything about shipbuilding. He preserved the sons of Helaman so that not one of them died, though they went through the fiercest parts of the battle. He strengthened the arm of Ammon against the Lamanite thieves. I mean, we could go on and on and on and talk about the works of the mighty Jehovah. And then he condescends to come as a baby, to come to human mortal life, where, yes, he still had powers of godliness inherited from his heavenly father in a mortal sense because God was his father, but he also had the ability to be hurt to age, to die because of his mortal mother, Mary. And he agreed to come to this humble station. Isaiah describes this so beautifully. Reading from Isaiah 53, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So many amazing messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. We are going to be able to study them next year. It's pretty exciting to be in the Old Testament again. Sometimes a book that people are a little confused by. So I'm looking forward to being able to discuss that a little bit. But back to this Christmas podcast. I want to share along the same lines some statements in a speech by Neil Maxwell called Irony, the Crust on the Bread of Adversity. For Jesus, Maxwell says, irony began at his birth. This whole earth became Jesus' footstool, but at Bethlehem there was no room in the inn and no crib for his bed. At the end, meek and lowly Jesus partook of the most bitter cup without becoming the least bitter. The most innocent suffered the most. So I hope you're thinking about this in terms of the condescension of God how Christ agreed to come to a, a world of irony for him. I mean, you should go back for a second and look at that title again. Irony, the crust on the bread of adversity. Love Maxwell, love the way he uses language. It's so true that there is a bread of adversity and we all go through times of trial and tribulation. 
But when it's ironic, it makes it particularly painful. When we're doing good and we're being blamed for doing evil. Or, you know, when we're the innocent one, but we're, we're the one that looks guilty. Anyway, there are so many ironies in life. You know, we're, we're, you know, trying to make these efforts and, and they're coming to naught. And what Maxwell is suggesting here is that part of his condescension of the Lord was that his life was much more ironic than any of ours could be. And then he points this out. Again, remember, you know, the whole earth was his footstool, but in Bethlehem, there was no room in the inn. And that he took the most bitter cup without becoming the least bitter. Boy, isn't that something to shoot for? Because there are so many times in life where it's easy to become bitter because of hard things that happen. But in following the path of Christ, who had the most ironic life, the most ironic trials, we can choose to not be bitter. The most innocent suffered the most. In heaven, Christ's lofty name was determined to be the only name on earth offering salvation to all mankind. Yet the mortal Messiah willingly lived so modestly, even, wrote Paul, as a person of no reputation. So there is no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved. And yet, you know, people didn't even know who he was. They didn't even recognize him, of course, for for who he was and who he is to all of us, whether we acknowledge it or not. Some more words from Maxwell. As the creator, Christ constructed the universe, yet in little Galilee, he was known merely as the carpenter's son. In fact, the Lord of the universe was without honor even in his own Nazarene countryside. Though astonished at his teachings, his neighbors were offended at him. Even meek Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Later in this same speech, Maxwell says, As Jehovah, Jesus issued the original commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy, but during his mortal messiahship, he was accused of violating the Sabbath, because on that day, he gave healing rest to the afflicted. This is an example that I, I use actually quite often with people, because it is so powerful to me. The irony of, of what they accused Christ of being through all the accusations at him, that he was the servant of Satan, Satan himself, and certainly they accused him of breaking the law of Moses. In some cases, those were stoning offenses. And I've probably said this before, but, but what was he doing to be able to withstand that onslaught of judgment and hate and condemnation? And I believe that because he knew who he was, that the irony of all that slander could wash off his back because he knew who he was. So I'll say things like, you know, here somebody is accusing Christ of being a, a Sabbath breaker or breaking the law of Moses. And I can only imagine that inside himself, he's thinking, well, that's interesting because actually I'm the giver of the law. <laughs> it's my Sabbath day. It is my law that was given to Moses on Sinai. He knew who he was. And yet look at the irony of people accusing him of breaking the very commandments that he gave doesn't get more ironic than, than that. Maxwell again, Christ was keenly aware of the constant irony. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Words from the Savior himself, acknowledging the irony. He made the world, but there was no place for him to rest in it. Or to be safe from the attacks of the wicked. And then think of the irony of this moment. 
Christ has just left Gethsemane, where he has bled from every pore and is arrested because of, of the traitor Judas. And what does he say? He says, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Now there's irony, that that was the way Judas chose to designate the Savior of the world, by giving that traitor's kiss. Maxwell quotes from 1 Nephi 19, And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it. Why? Because of his loving kindness and his long-suffering towards the children of men. He did it for us. And I hope that at this season and all through the year, we remember that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Christ paid the price for all of us to be redeemed from death without condition and from spiritual death if we choose to repent, to make and keep sacred covenants. We don't ever have to be doomed to separation from our God and our Savior so, you know, how can we bring Christ into Christmas? I know this is a trite question, but I'm just going to share a few ideas, and I'm sure you have plenty of ideas yourself. I hope you're implementing them all and sharing them with others and making sure that your children can carry on those traditions. You know, don't go too commercial. I mean, we keep saying it, but it's really hard to avoid it in a world of such abundance. Of course, this year with the supply chain issues, and it's hard to find things or get them here in time. Maybe that's going to be a forced, you know, backstep from consumerism, but, you know, maybe not because we're still able to, to scramble. But I hope that that's not the complete focus. I hope that we've taught our children that, it, you know, really, it's not just about getting a lot of stuff for Christmas. I had a client once that was meeting with me, it was the beginning of December, and somewhere in the conversation as we began our session, I said, well, are, you know, so are you getting close to being ready for Christmas? And she had this, you know, horrible look on her face and said, I hate Christmas. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, I scour the earth to find the latest and greatest gadgets and tech and whatever for my kids, and they're bored with it after five minutes. And there's always that. And, you know, is this all we're getting for Christmas? And I, I hope that, I mean, it's really awful. You know, we, we are s such natural men that sometimes even whether we have 100 gifts or three gifts, you know, at the end, it's like, is that it? You know, <laughs> is there anything more? And I hope we, we talk with our children about that, that this is a time, yes, we want to give some sweet gifts to each other, but it shouldn't be about what it is. And the reason this woman hated Christmas was because her kids were spoiled rotten. They had so much money in their family. They let it go to the kids that meaning that the kids had access to it pretty much any time they wanted. So if the kids heard of something new, they went and bought it right then with their parents' money, with their parents' credit card or whatever. So of course they were not excited for Christmas. And of course, here's this mother who's created her own hell, you know? Like, what was she thinking? Like, to just let them have everything that they want all year long? And then and then it's Christmas time? And, you know, what is there to, to be surprised about? Now, again, it shouldn't just be about the gifts, but we can we are going to probably buy gifts for our children in which case we can we can be wise about not spoiling them all year long if we want to give them gifts and they should have a chance to anticipate and enjoy it more so silliness silliness that we bring on ourselves we should help our children give to others uh, i remember vividly some of the the shopping days that we would have 
<laughs> before Christmas when all our eight children were home. And sometimes it was kind of a juggle because we'd all go to like a Target or Walmart or something and, and each of them would have a chance to buy gifts for their siblings. So the rest of them had to be at another part of the store. <laughs> then I would take turns with each one of them to make selections and whatever so that they could make decisions and, and be thoughtful about getting something that they thought their siblings would like. And that was such a great part of Christmas for my kids was thinking about others. You know, what did they want to, to give as a surprise gift to their siblings? And no, we did not spend a ton of money, I can guarantee it. But it was really sweet to see that. And then they would be excited to wrap up those gifts and put them under the tree and to see their their the face of their siblings and, and their parents when when gifts were opened. And that was sweet, that it was focused on giving. I hope that we do whatever we need to do to make sure that our kids you know, get into that spirit and don't just kind of do an obligatory offering or whatever, but that they actually think about something that can bring a little joy and, and a feeling of caring, of our caring for them in the gifts that we give. Of course, there are lots of things that people can do with young children. You've probably heard about this one where you can take, you know, like popsicle sticks or whatever, you know, now you can buy everything uh, made already, but to make a little manger. And then you can put it on the kitchen counter or something and cut up a bunch of yellow yarn or, or something, you know, pieces of hay. And every time they do a kind deed, they put, or somebody does a kind deed for them, they put a piece of straw in the manger. And the goal being that you start this at the beginning of December and that by Christmas Eve, there's so much straw in the manger that it's going to be a soft bed for the Savior as when he comes into the earth as a babe. So, you know, there are lots of ways to try to help our kids focus on more meaningful ways to celebrate Christmas. Don't wear yourselves out. Now, okay, I'm not saying I was perfect about this myself because we were on a limited budget. So I made a lot of gifts and I meant some late nights, you know, sewing or, or fashioning things or whatever. And certainly my husband, we saw a commercial years and years and years ago when we still had kids at home. That was a Christmas commercial that said, you know, here are the three most frightening words to any parent in December. Some assembly required. <laughs> We would laugh about that. We still laugh about that because, you know, I remember these late nights trying to assemble. My husband did most of the work. And this was before we had like power drills and stuff. So it was all just hand screw driving to assemble these kitchens or toys or, you know, bicycles or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> what could be crazy late nights trying to get things ready for Christmas morning. So I'm not saying we were perfect about that by any means, but we really did try to not be frenzied all month long. To not, and we got a little better at trying to do things ahead of time. Of course, it was easier when we had more space and we could hide things more effectively. But at any rate, you know, what are your kids going to remember about Christmas? If mom was in a bad mood all month or dad was in a bad mood all month or so stressed that they couldn't really engage in relationship ways because, you know, there was too much going on. That You know, we can do better. We can do better. And, and thinking about it and making some adjustments works if we can, if we can pull back. Now, I remember when one of my daughters, our first child that got married was our second, Bethany, and it was a wonderful time. But I remember just before the wedding, and of course, this was the first time we had, had you know, put together a reception and so on, you know, friends would ask, you know, are you done? Are you just going crazy toward the end? And I remember that we kind of stopped before, we stopped with the craziness before that. I don't know that we ever got went too crazy. Obviously, there was a lot of work to be done and, and stuff to plan. But I remember thinking, you know, there's always one more good idea. Like, why do I have to do all the good ideas? Like, some of them, some of them we can save for another time. It's, that's not what it's about. It's about the fact 
that this young daughter is worthy to be married in the temple and she's marrying a wonderful young man who is also worthy to be in the temple. That's what we're celebrating here. So, you know, to beat ourselves up, to add one more good idea to the reception, and it's not the point. It's not the point. So, I, I mean, I hope we think that way about Christmas. The point is to celebrate the birth of our Savior, not to wear ourselves into a frazzle or a frenzy where our kids just see us as, you know, burnt to a socket or something and in a bad mood or agitated or unavailable. I remember noticing this, and I hope I noticed it kind of early on in our family. I don't remember at what point, but anyway, it was a long time ago, and we still had our kids all at home when Christmas was on a Monday. So, and you know, that happens about every seven years. So, of course, we needed to be done with all our shopping and things on Saturday. And I loved that. It was sort of surprised me in a way, like, how silly is that? But it surprised me that I'm like, wow, we have a whole day, the Sabbath day, to go to church, sing Christmas carols, you know, have a program or whatever, and focus on Jesus Christ before Christmas morning. And and I thought, what? This is perfect. Like, we should have Sunday as Christmas Eve every year. Obviously, the calendar doesn't work that way. But I loved the way that felt, because we hurried to make sure that we had run all our last minute errands to the grocery store or whatever, and we're done. And then we could just kind of soak it in. We could soak in that feeling of Christmas together as a family on the Sabbath day and then have our Monday morning Christmas. So I remember after that awareness, I thought, well, I can do that. I don't have to wait until Christmas is on Monday again. All I have to do is just plan ahead and just tell myself I have a hard stop deadline at least the day before Christmas Eve, earlier if possible, but at least a hard stop then. So that, you know, since then I've really worked hard to make sure that the 24th of December is not a day of preparation. You know, try to have the gifts wrapped, try to have things delivered, try to have, you know, those last minute trips to the grocery store all done. So that at least on the 24th, I mean, it's even nicer if it's the 23rd, but the 24th is great. If on the 24th, we're listening to music, we're watching beautiful videos of the nativity, we're spending time, you know, soaking in this season with our family and loving, loving the time with each other. You know, it's just a day, right? It's just a day. But one day before the holiday is such a wonderful time to kind of, you know, stop our preparations early and, and take that, that Christmas Eve day to just soak in the love with our families. I'm going to say a word to people who share their children because of divorce, and they don't get their children every, every Christmas day or every Thanksgiving or some other holidays. And I've seen a lot of people struggle with this, but it's just a day on the calendar. You can set another day if you want to celebrate this with your, with your children on the off years or whatever. Don't rob yourself of of the spirit of Christmas with your children and don't get too bound up by the calendar. It's it's just a suggestion after all. I remember one year when my parents were serving as mission presidents in Tijuana and we lived in Las Vegas, my mother had, had kind of sent a plea and said, you know, I really, really would love to have your family here for the holiday. As you know, it was hard for them to be away from family. That happens. A lot of people are, are farther away than my parents were because it wasn't that long a drive from Las Vegas to get to Tijuana. So, but we decided, okay, we're going to not take all the gifts. That seemed crazy to me. So <laughs> we decided to have our Christmas day early that year. 
So we did kind of try to be prepared, you know, the day before so we could have our own Christmas Eve, even though it wasn't the 24th, it was probably the 22nd or the 23rd, I forget. And then we had our Christmas morning on the day that we designated and it felt like Christmas, you know, we turned off all the phones and we just had to play the music, we opened the gifts, we had the afterglow and everything and we put our tree away before we left so that, you know, it, was, it wasn't going to stay and drying out there in the room while we were gone visiting my parents. And one of our home teachers came there on Christmas Eve to bring us a little goodie or something and saw us putting away the tree. <laughs> He's like, did I get the day wrong? Like, <laughs> what's happening here? Anyway, it was kind of funny for us to remember that. But that allowed us to go and, and then spend Christmas with my folks, which meant a lot to them and was really lovely for us too. But it's just a day is my point. Organize it as you need to in order to have that spirit, that that spirit of Christmas with your your family and don't get hung up by a calendar we can make adjustments and our kids can adjust too we tried to make sure that the focus in our home with decorations even was more about the savior rather than you know santa and frosting even way back then and of course it's much worse now but back then you know the schools had stopped singing christmas carols and then it was always about rudolph and jingle bells and stuff like that and i and i thought okay they're going to get their dose of that and i'm not like a scrooge and i'm not anti-santa or anything Although I think you have to be really careful how you handle that with your kids. <laughs> I don't think it's worth, you know, going to great efforts to lie to them or fool them. Because anyway, there was a cartoon that I saw years ago in the Ensign. I mean, a long time ago when there was an Ensign. And it was a little boy walking home with a friend from Sunday school. And they're still in their Sunday clothes. They're walking on the sidewalk. And the one boy says to the other, what do you think about this, you know, this devil stuff, you know? And the other boy says, you know, I think it's like Santa and the Easter Bunny. It's just your dad. <laughs> Anyway, I thought that was really funny. And I thought, we have to be kind of careful about what we're telling our kids. Again, they're going to pick this up from the schools and their friends. And I don't think we have to like burst bubbles necessarily. But when they start asking questions, you know, I think my response was usually, well, if they asked if he was real, Santa was real, I'd say, well, what do you think? And usually, you know, by then they're like, well, I don't really. And anyway, and, and it was okay. I, I didn't try to ruin their fun, but I'm not going to lie to my kids. I just don't want to set that precedent. And I know I don't want them thinking it's just like the Easter Bunny and the devil, that it's it's just your parents or whatever. So anyway, I digress. But the point is to bring Christ into our family celebrations and even our decorations as much as we can, because they're going to get plenty of the other elsewhere, which is so secularized and so commercial that it's nice if in our homes we can can focus on the real meaning. And there are so many things that are available to us now. Again, we had to kind of make a lot of our own stuff back then, it seemed like. But but it's not hard to do that. You know, nativity sets around that the kids can talk about and play with. Maybe some they don't touch, but others that they can can play with. And we can talk about it. And they can see that this is all about the Savior, Jesus Christ. We used to do some activities about the names of Jesus Christ. And we'd look in the Bible dictionary, and it's just beautiful that there's this huge list of the names of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And every one of those names has a meaning and helps us understand another aspect of his amazing divinity. And we can work that into our month. Some of us had these Christmas books, and they were wonderful. It was kind of a you know, a 24-day notebook that had on every day some messianic prophecies that we could read from the Old Testament or the Book of Mormon, and also a Christmas carol that we could sing, as well as then a Christmas story that always had a really tender part to it. It was sometimes about Jesus Christ, and sometimes it was about 
a legend of Christ or a Christmas legend, but they all had really lovely meanings. And our kids loved those stories and they heard them every year, but they still enjoyed hearing those stories because it put us in that nice, you know, Christmas feeling. We would sing hymns. Oh, I have to go back and say that. Like, it seems like it was in another life, but I actually, <laughs> I found this, this book of counted cross stitch patterns that all had symbols of Jesus Christ, like the A and the Omega for Alpha and Omega, or scenes of Bethlehem, or of the star, or the wise men, or Mary with the baby, or, or the Holy Family. Anyway, it's hard for me to believe I ever had time to do counted cross stitch, but I did. And I did these 24 little medallions that I put them in little medallions. And we had a, a fabric piece with buttons. And every day we would hang up one of these symbols of Jesus Christ and talk about what that meant. I even made an advent calendar, and again, I think you could buy these easily now, but of the whole Bethlehem scene, the, the stable and the manger and whatever, and every day the kids could pin another little piece of, of the felted story on that so that we could see that, like, you know, here we're waiting for Christmas Eve to put the baby in the manger. So it was, you know, we really tried to focus on Jesus Christ at home. And I, I really hope that you're doing that. Of course, we should worship through music. This is such a great time of year. Some of my daughters, and I love that they do this, will listen to Christmas music at various times during the year. And I think, what a good idea, because we don't just need to wait till December to listen to these beautiful, beautiful songs and carols celebrating Jesus Christ and the spirit of the season. And I'm not saying that I don't listen to some other less religious Christmas music. There's a really good Michael Bublé duet with somebody that where he does Feliz Navidad and they sing a song, Mis Deseos, and you know, whatever, that are beautiful together. Anyway, so I don't just listen to sacred religious or sacred or religious Christmas music, but I mostly do. I mostly do. And then there I throw in some fun other things as well. But I want my children to, to know that music, to sing that music. This makes me sad. I'll talk about this later, probably next year in the Old Testament. But I just want to mention that I'm always sad when I'm sitting in sacrament meeting and I see young people not singing the hymns. We need to make a joyful noise unto God. And this is a beautiful time of the year to do it. But all year long, we could sing songs of Jesus Christ in our church meetings. And I'm sorry that that doesn't happen in, in a lot of families. And I hope that we'll make sure it happens in our families so that our children come to love the hymns. Their prayers can be answered through some of those great doctrinal messages in the hymn book. So, you know, enjoy it at this time of year, but all year round as well. And of course, the famous nativity play, right? Where, you know, dad would read the, the story from Luke of, of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem and the birth of the, the babe. And you know, we put on little costumes and have, we had a lot of characters in our house because of the eight children. So we had ears for the sheep and we had beards for the, you know, shepherds and the wise men and anyway, different, different outfits. They were not fancy. Let me tell you, my kids have, have made some really beautiful costumes for their nativity plays. And maybe I should have been a little more inventive, but it worked. And we would, you know, have the angel and the and Mary and Joseph, and sometimes we even had a baby that was in the family in time to be the Christ child. But, you know, we video recorded some of those, and I don't know where this video recording is. I'm sure it's digitized somewhere that I can't find it or remember, but maybe I'll trip over it someday. But there was one memorable time where one of our daughters was Mary, and she was riding on the back of one of her brothers, who was being a donkey that year. 
And here we are, you know, video recording this as the story is read and the donkey's elbow gave way, his arm kind of buckled and Mary pitched forward onto the, onto the ground. And anyway, it was memorable, but those, those are sweet memories. Those are sweet memories as the kids would say their parts, the angel would say the beautiful announcement to the shepherds and the shepherds would come and worship. Now we have so much amazing material that the church has provided. This beautiful nativity movie, I, I imagine you've seen it. Watch it again. Watch it many times during the season if you can. It's tender and beautiful. I think this is a great time to listen to, to watch again the Easter videos that the church puts out. The, the Because of Him series and the, the testimonies of Christ that people give. They do a, such a beautiful job. And those are or the feelings of this season. I hope we remember that in the broad sense, Christmas is just a warm-up to Easter. That's, that's the victory. That's Christ's victory over death and hell. And this is why he came. And if we can connect those two things for our children, it's a wonderful connection, that they can know who this babe of Bethlehem was, who the Christ child actually was, that he was a great God who condescended to come in such ironic fashion to the earth where people so often did not know who he was, only a very few who had eyes to see, including those righteous shepherds, including Simeon in the temple, and eventually including his apostles, knew who he was. But what a gift it is that we know, and we can remember that time with eyes to see the great, the great gift that was given to the earth. I'm going to say something about people who don't have the traditional family situation for whatever reason, whether it's through the losses of death or divorce, who may not, or who are single, who may not have that family, that traditional family around to do these things. And I have worked with many people in that situation. And my heart breaks for people who are lonely at Christmas time. But I don't think we have to stay in that situation. I remember a long time ago now, a woman came in who was divorced her parents had passed away. She only got her children every other Christmas and every other Thanksgiving, the way that kind of often goes. And she didn't really have any siblings that were close. She had a couple of older brothers, I think, that were in another state. But they were like 14 years older than she was, at least, or more. She was kind of a tail end afterthought baby. And so she hadn't really grown up with those siblings and didn't really have a close relationship to them. And it was not convenient to go to travel to see them or, you know, it didn't really work out. So she felt very alone on the Christmases where her children were with their father. And when she came in to see me, that was a presenting issue. And I, and I said, look, you need to reinvent this holiday. This, it's not okay for you to hate Christmas or lament it or to feel sad during this season. This should be a joyous time. So if it's not joyous in the traditional ways or the way it used to be before the divorce, then reinvent it. Like find some ways to celebrate and to capture the spirit of the season that don't involve your children so that every other year you can, you can do those things. And of course, that often involves service or different kinds of personal celebrations or observances that we can make of the holiday in our own lives. We can join with others who are sim in similar situations or not if they're not available. But we can do this. We are agents. We are to act and not to be acted upon. Life is hard and things are so ironic. And that is one of the ironies that some people suffer at Christmas time is that they don't have a family around them. And if that's the case, reinvent it. And I would challenge anybody who's in that situation 
to work on reinventing this holiday. This woman did a great job. She actually came back and told me that she, and it was sometime later that she came back and, and I asked how it had gone. And she said, you know what? I figured out that I was going to serve at soup kitchens, you know, some of the places that prepare meals for the homeless. And she kind of joined a group that that did that on holidays. And she said, it was wonderful because I wasn't thinking, I wasn't sitting at home. And then she'd had friends that had invited her. And sometimes she would stop by those friends' houses, but she didn't feel comfortable spending the whole day there. Although, you know, if you have friends that you can feel comfortable with, please do. But she really had enjoyed kind of finding this new way to mark the holiday by serving in this particular way. And over the years, because I saw this woman every once in a while, over the years, she said that she actually created kind of a community because there were some people who very regularly served in those kitchens and for those meals, and that they would would celebrate seeing each other and serving the less fortunate in that way. And she told me about one year where somebody had had this idea to say like, hey, I have a cell phone. Who needs to make a phone call home or to family or to loved ones? And all the volunteers started offering their cell phones for people to make phone calls to their family and how tender those experiences were and how that became a new way to celebrate was by making sure your cell phone was charged up and and maybe even bringing in a charger so that you could keep it going and letting people make phone calls to family if they wanted to. So she said, it's, this is so weird. She goes, I never thought this would be true, but I, I love having my children with me for Christmas, but I even love the years when I don't have my children because I have found a way to observe Christmas that's meaningful to me out of the ordinary, traditional way. That's the challenge, is to reinvent this holiday. We can do it. We absolutely can do it. And it's, it's our responsibility to not be miserable during Christmas. I'm serious about that. I'm really serious about that. We are meant for better things. Man is that he might have joy. We can find a way to create joy in our lives out of the ordinary way. And instead of comparing our lives to somebody else's that might have the more traditional situation, of course, we have no idea the struggles that they're dealing with either. Nevertheless, let's reinvent Christmas or any holiday if it's necessary. And I promise that you can do that if you will apply yourself to that. Now, like I said, everybody can enjoy these beautiful videos, watch the Easter videos. This is a time to really make sure we are feeling God's love. I've talked about that before, but we need to polish off our receptors. If we're feeling alone, if we're not feeling that embrace of Heavenly Father's love, we need to do that. It's, there's no question that the love exists. So if we're not feeling it, we need to do something so that we can connect to that ever-present love. And what a great time to exercise that, that experience and make sure that we, we fix our receptors and we take in the love of Christ. Another thing I have to mention, because I really love this, and it is 13 years old now, I can hardly believe that. I don't know how we stumbled upon it or if somebody told us about it, I don't remember. A couple of kids at BYU did this beautiful little video called Joy to Everyone This Christmas. That's the name of it, Joy to Everyone This Christmas. And there's actually a website called joytoeveryonethischristmas.org that you can look up and find that video. It's also on YouTube. And if you just put in Joy to Everyone This Christmas, it comes up on YouTube. There are some other things by that name, but it has faces of people from other countries and you won't have a hard time finding it. I think it's usually the second one that comes up when I do the search on YouTube and you'll find it. It's beautiful. I listen to that every Christmas 
more than once. I try to work it in many times. I've shared it with a lot of people. Look it up. It's beautifully done and, again, fills us with the love of God and love for each other, which is the whole point. Now, I'm going to say something about establishing Zion because this is a gift we can give to the world, to our families, to the Savior himself, is to establish Zion. I mentioned that a little bit on and off. We're going to talk a lot about it this next year as well. I've been reading some things about Zion and establishing Zion by John Pontius, who writes a beautiful book about that. I'm quoting from from John Pontius. We have been tasked with building Zion prior to the Lord's second advent, and the Lord will not return until Zion is here to receive him. Can we ignore such a divine responsibility and still hope to be counted valiant? Now, I mentioned a quote by Patricia Holland from a book that she wrote earlier in the year. I mentioned that book and how she's saying that, of course, the Lord wants to come and put an end to the misery and the strife and the sin. But are we making it possible for him to come? Or are we halting the progression of these prophecies being fulfilled because we have not established Zion. We have everything we need. We have all the priesthood keys on the earth. We have temples all over the place to teach us the ways of godliness, the mysteries of godliness. We have all the commandments. We have access to the ordinances. We have so much abundance of gospel knowledge and teaching available to us. And then, Pontius again, more than a place, Zion is a state of being a personal condition of absolute righteousness. So this isn't about like being called back to Jackson County. This is about establishing Zion in our individual lives, in our personal living of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that again. More than a place, Zion is a state of being, a personal condition of absolute righteousness. Now, line upon line, precept upon precept, of course, the Lord is patient, but we should not be overly complacent about this or lazy about it. This is a gift we can give to the world to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. How badly do we need the Savior to come again and put an end to the misery? So what can I do? I can establish a Zion life for myself. I can live a life of absolute righteousness as I progress and continue in repentance, as I continue to go to God and ask, what lack I yet? He will tell me what I need to change I probably already know some things that I can change. Let's get to it. Pontius again. When there are saints worthy of entering the holy city, then when it is time, the Lord will instruct his prophet to build the actual city. Now think about that. The prophet isn't going to say, let's go build the city of Zion until there are enough saints, Latter-day Saints that are worthy to enter that holy city where Christ will walk the streets. So if if we are being kind of lazy about it or not thinking about it. And it might not be that we're lazy, but if we're not focused on this, if we don't have our eyes single to Christ and the fulfilling of of his invitation and commandment to build Zion, then we're delaying that instruction to build the city. And I know God has a timetable and we're not like really messing with it so much, but this has to be done before the Savior can come. So I don't want to be the one slowing it down. Last sentence by Pontius, until the prophet speaks, our quest is a personal one to become Zion worthy. But when the prophet is ready to make that call, if I'm not Zion worthy, I'm not going to be a part of that call. And I want to be. If I'm still on the earth, I want to be worthy to receive that call 
to go and build the holy city and to usher in the millennium with Christ coming to the earth and starting to fulfill the final prophecies to gather the Zion people out of the wickedness of the world and ultimately to establish the reign of Jehovah on the earth for the millennium time. Such an exciting time to be there on the earth. I'm going to finish with this quote from the living Christ again. Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel who stands today on the right hand of his father. He is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. God be thanked for the matchless gift of his divine son. Brothers and sisters, I am grateful for Jesus Christ. I'm grateful to my Heavenly Father for his wonderful, merciful plan. And so grateful that his divine son, the Lamb of God, stepped forward and said, Here am I, send me. And condescended to leave his throne, to come in the most humble circumstances to this earth, to experience mortality, to wait 30 years before his ministry began on this earth, and then to crown it only three years later with his infinite atoning sacrifice. We are not our own. We were bought with the price. May we acknowledge it every day of our lives. May we celebrate it at this time and always. May we prepare for, again, the Easter season as we commemorate his birth at this time and his triumph over sin and death in the coming season of Easter. I love being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is his church. May I help to bring in his coming a second time by trying more fervently to live a Zion life and to invite those around me to join in. It's up to them, but I can choose for myself. And I do choose. I choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ in my imperfect, humble, and human way. And I'm getting better as I try. So may we all, little by little, become better followers of Jesus Christ and be ready to build this holy city when the time is right. Thanks to my husband for all his patience with the efforts that I make here in this podcast and his help. And thanks to Doug Larson of Point Digital for his amazing support and work in editing these podcasts. Brothers and sisters, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.